Hi everyone, it's Brent Adamson, and welcome to the Gartner Sales Podcast, the podcast where I sit down with our best thinkers, researchers, and leaders from across the company to share with you not only the practical tips, but sometimes the mind-bending insights that you'll need to sell more effectively, especially in a time of deep uncertainty like, well, like today. So today we are joined by my friend and colleague, Doug Boucher. Doug is a vice president analyst on our team. Uh, Doug, you have an storied and incredibly successful career at Xerox and sales enablement, global sales enablement for many years, uh, and now a part of our team. And I can't tell you how excited I am to, uh, to join the stage with you today. Thank you for joining us. Oh, Brent, I'm excited to be here. So I wanted to dig in today, Doug, on a, a piece of work that you've just published, which is, of course, completely appropriate for the time we find ourselves in. The official title is Redesigned Face-to-Face Sales Training for the Virtual Classroom. Uh, and the whole idea, well, actually, when I want to ask you, Doug, what's the, what's the idea behind the, the research note? What were you getting at? And then we can maybe take some time, pick it apart, look at it from a couple different angles and, and share some lessons learned. Yeah, sure. So, so even before the crisis, there was already pressure on sales enablement leaders to move face-to-face workshops or face-to-face training to virtual. To your point, obviously, the last two months have accelerated that. And, and now that it isn't an option anymore. It's a, we've got to do it. So that the motive behind the note was, so how do I do that, but yet preserve the integrity of that learning experience? So in many ways, what you're focused on in this particular uh, piece of research, Doug, I guess is sort of the the best practices, the the questions to consider, the advantages, disadvantages of doing this. So we'll, we'll dig into all that. I, but before we do, I just a question for you, which is, to your point, which is this has accelerated this shift towards virtual, but to your other point that this shift was already underway, does that mean it's accelerated and we're never going back? So tell me where you land on this idea of blended training, for example, blended being some real, you know, real time in person, some online. Has the has the balance shifted to 100% virtual for the foreseeable future and forever? Are we going to go back? How do you read the tea leaves on on training? Yeah, I, you know, I, I read the tea leaves this way, and and clients are are validating this is that there are things, some things that we can do in face to face that are just we just can't replace, nor do we want to replace in a virtual environment. So I, I absolutely feel that we will not ever go back to 100% virtual training all of the time. That being said, the technology and the lessons learned just over the last two months on what can be accomplished in a virtual will certainly there will be some of those lessons that we will maintain, and it's likely that will be that our clients and anyone involved in sales training will do more virtual training and less face-to-face sales training. It, it's it really is kind of our new reality. We keep talking about the overused terms of what new normal and all that, but this this really is sort of probably very likely the new way of doing this is certainly for the foreseeable future. I, I don't know about you, Doug, I miss being on airplanes, but let's face it, it's a lot cheaper when you don't put all sorts of people on airplanes and send them to classrooms somewhere, to, you know, for three, four days. So, so let's talk about, so the advantage. So, so I think there's, there's a generally up until now when we're forced, you know, the, our, our hand was forced and we're moving into this world up until now, there's always been at least a strong sentiment, well, at least partial sentiment around, you know, it's just better in person. There's so many advantages to getting in a room where I can look you in the eye, we can engage one another in person, we can do activities in a very dynamic way. But you argue in um, in this particular research project, which makes a ton of sense, there are in fact some advantages. There are indeed disadvantages to virtual training, but there's some advantages as well. Can, can you maybe just take us through sort of how you see the advantages and disadvantages of virtual training? Yeah, sure. So 
you know, I came from from a program that was storied as part of the sales training that that uh, the study about the the sales training in in MBA programs, right? And and that program was very reliant on a classroom based environment with student cohorts, folks that they remember who went through their new hire say they went through their new hire sales training and and that aura that that energy still permeates amongst our clients where that's where we say hey look why i i've got to do this face to face that being said when confronted with the science there are there are certain advantages to now being able to do things you couldn't do in a face to face so once i think we can all agree that we've heard the expression you know going through a new hire sales training or sales training can be like drinking water through a fire hose and we i used to add the expression through a straw that all you felt like if you're going to fly everybody in and you've got all these resources there you are going to maximize the day and you are going to you're going to teach them everything you can in that one week or that two one weeks. way or another you are going to learn this and you're going to learn you know, all of it <laughs> whether you like it or not <laughs> <laughs> that's right even though the science tells us that 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 they're going to forget most of what they learned and it didn't matter right the emotions were so strong it didn't matter where now you don't have that limitation you can actually take advantage of learning design components like spaced repetition where i can teach students a little bit each day and reinforce it over a longer period of time because i'm not flying them all in one week. So it gives you a lot more flexibility. Access to the sellers. Many learning design and sales enablement professionals say, yeah, it'd be great to have the CEO talk to them for an hour in the classroom. Well, you're not going to fly the CEO or the CSO to every new hire class for just one hour. Well, guess what? Now you've got more flexibility. Any subject matter expert, any senior leader, anyone across the globe could easily log in to a new hire class in a virtual environment and and create some motivation. Um, the, how they the, when when the training starts, oftentimes you had these big cohorts. Well, when a seller comes on board, you waited until the next cohort to fly them, make sure they had their credit card, make sure everything. Now with a, a with an approach where Every, everyone across the globe can almost start when they get hired and then they sync up naturally so you can align the, the training with what the seller is doing in the field. And of course, there is the cost savings. You know, we, Regardless of what's happening with your business, now you can redeploy some of the savings you have to improve the overall learning experience. So there certainly are some so advantages like to that, a virtual Doug, training. I'm delivery. just wondering, like, I'm trying to place myself in the shoes of a, of a sales enablement, a VP of sales enablement, global VP of sales enablement. You know, it's a big company. Or it could be small. It doesn't really matter. I'm just trying, I'm, I'm just a moment of empathy, Doug. I'm trying to say, cause like, what's the world look like from their point of view? And you've lived this role for many, many years. So so should my attitude, do you think, as, as a head of sales enablement be like, okay, I guess it's not so bad? Or should my attitude be, you know, like, wow, this is like, this is the better way to do it. Do you see what I'm saying? It's like, it's, it's not the better way to do it, but it's okay. It'll be a one end versus like, no, actually this is better. Where do you fall on that continuum? Is, is it probably a little bit of both maybe, but tell me more about, I mean, do I just, am I still grudgingly doing this or should I be running towards this uh, enthusiastically? What do you think? 
I don't know if I'd be running to it because at the same point in time, there are going to be some things we can't, but I absolutely would say it's a competitive advantage to be able to be more agile and more flexible with the way you deliver training to your sales and you get more agility and more flexibility in a virtual campaign, a learning campaign. Well, see, now that's interesting, right? Because that's like scratching the surface a little bit more. So there's, you know, so we start, and, and I, as a former teacher, I totally get this. We start with sort of the pedagogical implications, advantages, disadvantages, the networking, the human aspect. But you start thinking about it from that perspective. Um, this agility point can't be overlooked, I got to think, right? I can, I can turn my training on a dime. I can people in, out. I can move it. I can shorten it, lengthen it. This just allows me um, options that... But from that perspective, I got to think, I don't know if I could make an argument. This might actually be better in many ways. Um, there are, I got it. I got to share with you. There, There is a big camp that I'm in the camp where we're getting close to equal. There are folks that are still in the camp where face-to-face is better. And there are folks in the camp that virtual's better. And so, so you're not wrong in having that emotion that, when you talk, when you hear me talk about the benefits of virtual, that there are certainly aspects that are better than in face to face. Full stop. So not just better because we have to, but better because it's better. The reason I ask is because you know we're all trying to figure out like where does this go in the next three months, six months, twelve months, right? So you know, I, I, is this the end of uh, in person training? And the end, your answer sounds like is probably not. But but let's not overlook the fact that some of what we've shifted towards could be in fact our new long term reality. That's right. And, and you've seen this too, that that a lot of folks that fought the move to virtual, now that they've had to go, I think a lot of our clients have said they've been pleasantly surprised by some of the things they've seen. And we're going to see the same with folks that fought moving their new hire workshops or to, uh, to full virtual or fought moving a face-to-face workshop to virtual. They're going to be pleasantly surprised if they incorporate the things that you and I are talking about today, because I would say the biggest mistake folks make is they lift what they were doing in face-to-face and they shift to the virtual environment. And that's a recipe for disaster. And then that was your second of the, there's, there's three or four points we want to pull out in this. And that was your second real uh, of focus or tip or lesson, I guess, and all this is that there's certain considerations that we have to account for in terms of things that we just port over, we lift and shift, use your language. And some things that actually we're going to have to modify. So it's like, so tell me a little bit more about your thinking there. So what, what can we just sort of port over? What stays the same? What has to change when we think about moving in-person training to virtual? Yeah. And there's a lot of good news here. So for those that, you know, I, I, I want to preface what I'm about to say is that oftentimes stakeholders have the misrepresent, you know, they misunderstand virtual and they think it's a heck of a lot cheaper. But there is, there is an investment in the design, and we're going to talk about that. That being said, there is a lot we can keep from a face-to-face. So let's take a new hire face-to-face class that one of our, that one of our listeners, if you're listening right now, maybe you've got a face-to-face new hire, you have a face-to-face workshop. You don't have to start from scratch. The first thing is you had learning objectives for that face-to-face. Those are going to stay the same. We're not going to lower our expectations for the seller just because we're doing virtual. So we're going to keep the learning objectives. If you wanted them to apply and learn about something and apply a particular skill, we're going to keep that learning objective. So when you're talking to your team, we're going to keep the learning project, uh, the learning objectives. We're actually going to keep a lot of the content. We're going to change the way it's delivered, but the content that was prepared to be delivered face-to-face, we're still going to leverage and use that content. 
any kind of testing or knowledge assessments that we used in the face-to-face -face classroom, we're absolutely going to keep those. Any type of role plays that were developed, where in the face-to-face -face environment, our sellers were role-playing different scenarios, we're going to actually keep that role-playing content. We're going to keep case studies, and we're actually going to keep the presentation. So those are the things that we're going to keep. But I'm finding out it's a very rich experience at home. They're watching, you know, YouTube videos, or they're watching PowerPoint presentations or slideshows. They're watching. They're going to websites. They're, they're. It's like it's such a. It's a. I don't know. One way or another, whether you call it good pedagogy or not, it's just. It's very. It's a multimedia experience, and I got to think as you move into virtual that that potentially maybe we were already going down this road, but it potentially does offer an opportunity. It's like maybe same content, but what if I were to take this content and think about how to make it a richer experience with different, whether it's video or audio or, you know, uh, uh, interactive content. Um, I, arguably, I suppose you should be doing that in person anyway, but if nothing else, this, this provides a moment uh, for you to step back and say, now that we're going to make the shift anyway, maybe that is the time to begin to look at some of these things. Is that, is that fair? It's not only fair, it's spot on. It, moving in this direction expands the possibilities for what you can do. And, and that's the biggest challenge for clients moving is that sometimes they don't know what they don't know. And there's four key things that we highly recommend that you absolutely do redesign and develop. And I think that hits to your point. The first is the program map. We're not going to deliver an eight-hour day virtual workshop. Right. So so any map or agenda that had you from eight to five on Monday, Tuesday, we're redesigning that and we're moving a day to potentially a week so that it's a little bit each day. So we're going to redesign the map and it's going to take advantage of the virtual training path. You could do two 90 minute sessions. There's this there's the virtual knowledge. Many, you know, many of our listeners may know about the, what we what we say 9028, which 9028 is the neuroscience behind no virtual module should be longer than 90 minutes. But even inside that 90 minutes, there should be no one topic that's longer than 20. So I shouldn't just ramble for 90 or for 60 minutes or 90 minutes on one section. Every 20 minutes, I need to have a, a, a seismic shift in the way I do the virtual. And then even inside that 20, every eight minutes, I should be engaging the audience somehow. I should be asking a question. So you could do a night. You, again, this is where it really depends on your learning objectives and what you're trying to accomplish. But that does give you some guidelines on what you want, how you want to structure these different days. You know, I, I'm laughing only because I did a I did a virtual session today, as as I think you know, and I think I violated every one of those three rules. So not really I did, I I've heard you, Brent. I know every eight minutes you're you're engaging folks. So I don't know. I think <laughs> well, no, I, I have only one rule, Doug. As you know, is just talk as fast <laughs> as I possibly can because then I can do three hours of content in ninety minutes. But okay, so this, so okay, sorry. So program map. So that's number one. There's the I guess there's three more you wanted to walk through. Yeah. So. The second one hits right on now what's possible is that these modules do need to be engaging. They, they absolutely need to be shorter. We've all heard the attention span data. We all know that, that, that you know, three to four minute videos can be very engaging. So we need videos. Group activities are, are part of the design where on Monday we kick something off and we put a small group together. And then during the week, 
on their own. They do some work. And then Friday, when we bring them back together, they've done some learning during the week group activities. And again, more frequent knowledge assessments, because the knowledge assessments, not only do they reinforce what folks learn, but they give a dashboard back to the team on where their population is. If I'm an instructor in a class, I can pretty much get who's understanding what. You know, it's, it's hard to hide in a classroom, but in a virtual environment, if someone's lost, they may not feel comfortable raising their hand. I may not know that they don't get it. And then that's only going to get worse as the training continues. So frequent use of knowledge assessments to get an understanding of where my class is as individuals and as groups. That's second. Give me an example of a knowledge assessment. It makes a ton of sense. I really like, because otherwise you could get really far down the road before you realize you lost them in you know, three sessions. Yeah, very, I mean, very powerful. Typically they're misused. And when I say misused is they're often given at the end of a training. And, and honestly at that, you don't even have to score a hundred to complete the training. There may be some threshold that that's good enough. Well, what you're doing is you're sending your sellers out there then where they're wrong a certain percentage of the time and you're okay with that. And that's a problem. Makes sense. So are you talking like top quizzes or what's what's that? Because like, it sounds like knowledge assessment sounds like code for I am going to prove to you that you don't know what you're talking about. Right? I mean, it sounds almost like punitive somehow, but I, I don't think that's what you actually mean. At least I hope it's not. <laughs> yeah. No, it's not what I mean, but it's it's an excellent point. Maybe you and I can come up with a new term, but let me give you an example of here's where the neuroscience is. If you remember you when you had your, I love the term textbook because I can relate to that. You read your chapter first, and then at the end of each chapter, there tended to be a test. And then the answers were there too. All What we know is that's the backwards way that we should have been taught. What we should have done is we should have taken the knowledge assessment first because when the brain gets a question wrong, it now knows that's wrong. So then if we'd taken the knowledge assessment first, and let's say we scored a 40 on it because we don't know the material yet, as we read the chapter, when we would get to topics that we got wrong, the brain is more primed to say, oh, this was that question that I didn't know the answer to. So the brain's more likely to retain the information. So in a, in a virtual world, imagine where you should be is I'm a seller. You hire different skills, different knowledge. When I take the test first, I actually should only focus on what I don't know. Rather than force every seller through every module of every new hire, you really should only teach folks what they don't know already. So you, so the knowledge assessment can be a huge productivity enhancer by one, making the curriculum more personalized to the seller, but two, actually helping them focus as they go through the learning on what they don't know. So that's one way it's used positively. Another is absolutely to attack the forgetting curve. We all know that almost as soon as I finished a course, I start forgetting the knowledge and the skills in the course. And by getting bite-sized, short questions each day afterwards, I can start to figure out what I know for sure. And then if I get something wrong, then I revisit that. And that spaced repetition, that ongoing learning actually moves our sellers to what we consider mastery of the content. Now I'm not just at an 80 or a 90% and I've passed the class. I actually keep getting these questions until I know 100% about the product or 100% about the service. So that's what we talk about uh, when we talk about knowledge assessments really as a positive for learning.
I love this idea of sort of chunking it out into small bite-sized pieces and then spreading it out over time, which makes sense. So those are, so we are, we've gone through two. There's three, there's uh, two more. I think you want to get on the table in terms of what stays, what changes. Um, yeah. Probably one of the changes. most challenging is, is when you brought people face to face to do hands-on activity, right? Where they're actually using something or they're doing something. That being said, there is a lot of work that's done where you can now have what we call remote labs, where you can emulate in a virtual environment. Um, certainly with software, it's becoming far more. I can change the code. I can, I can demonstrate the software to a client. I can work inside the tool. But even in hardware now, you can have remote labs where while it it doesn't get exactly where you want to do. There are some things you can do to where the seller is as if they were hands on the tool. So that would be the third. And then the final are these group projects that, you know, in, in a in a classroom environment, I send you over, you know, you and these two other folks, I send you over to this room. I send, I divide you up into smaller groups and you guys go whiteboard and flip chart stuff. And then you kind of come back in a virtual, you do need to redesign that. Uh, you either need a platform that allows you to do that virtually, or instead of sending them to another conference room, you tell everyone, okay, for the remainder of the day, you five are going to work together using digital capabilities, video, digital, and you're going to work on this project. And then at the end of the day, when we all come back together virtually, we're going to bring you back into the master classroom. So those are four things that do need to be redesigned, but can still be very effective. It sounds it sounds both exciting and kind of intimidating. I, I, I don't know. I mean, it's like, I, I just think of my own, again, my own experience as teacher and doing lesson plans and pedagogical designs and all that kind of stuff. And there's a, there's always this question of like, you look at something that someone else has done and think, I would have never thought of that. Or, oh, that's so clever. So I got to imagine there's a real value in this world of best practice sharing, finding out what other companies are doing, just talking to other people in the world. Um, you, I know, have been very active over time and, you know, training and development uh, associations, things like that. Um, because all of this is going to be new to so many of us, um, whether it's calling us and talking to people like you, Doug, and getting your input or just talking to other people in a similar job, whether it's on social media or through your own personal network, there's a, the, I, I think the ones who are going to excel here are just the ones that are collect generating and collecting as many new ideas as they possibly can to, to experiment. Is that, does that ring true with you? Oh, it, it, it's, it's a, it absolutely rings true. And what I would suggest to anyone listening, uh, a really fun exercise to do is what we would call a training hack or a learning hack where go to a new hire seller. If you could design your own training, what would it look like? And it is fascinating, especially when you hear some of these digital natives talk about how they would design their own training. Um, one, they just think everything could be done. Oh, I just click here. I do this. They don't really necessarily understand what has to happen behind the curtain for all that to happen. But you will get really good insight on how they want to learn and how they expect the, the learning experience to be. And I think that goes to your point of gathering best practices and understanding how to improve the learner experience. I love it. That's a great one. You got any other learning hacks? That was a good one. <laughs> well, I think another learning hack, not to put them on their own, is you imagine your seller is surrounded by other folks. And one of the biggest challenges with virtual, especially with new hires, is they can feel isolated very quickly. New hires don't have the informal network that during the training class, they can quickly 
IM or message somebody yet. They only know who's in their cohort and they know their facilitator. So one, giving guidance and providing a roadmap to the learner and to any mentors they have on what the seller's going through can have a huge, is a huge hack in terms of helping them reinforce. But I think the final hack I'd say is that oftentimes everyone's focused on the student and that's excellent. But too often I see facilitators that were phenomenal star facilitators in the face-to-face -face world, but then when they're asked to deliver virtually, they're, they're a little bit out of their element. There does need to be, if you're a sales enablement leader or sales L&D leader, there does need to be an aspect of how do I train my facilitators? to facilitate a virtual class. And there are different skills that the facilitators need to do. A quick hack, Brent, would be questioning. If I call out your name and then ask you a question, that's a very positive approach because one, if you had fallen asleep or you were disengaged, your name engages you and then you get the question. If I ask the question and then I call out your name, now I'm punishing you. And just little nuances like that in a virtual environment can have a big impact on the student's experience. So those are just a couple other things that we talk about on how to elevate your virtual training game. That is great. Particularly that, that last one, you just took me to school on taking people to school. I love it. That's <laughs> awesome. So that's, thank you. So let me do this. Um, so there's there's one other point that I do want to just take a couple minutes, Doug, maybe you and I could share sort of, so what we learned you and I did a big, uh, what we call a, a sales enablement cohort or a forum call with about, I don't know, 50 heads of sales enablement uh, earlier this week. And we talked about sales kickoffs. So maybe we could, I'd love to, you and I could riff on that a little bit, but there's there's a third point of these three that in your in your note that I want to hit on, which is um, this, because there, there are certain benefits, of course, I think we'd all agree to just in-person, right? So one way or another, we talked about the advantages and disadvantages and the cost structure. And we talked about how to modify, you know, pedagogical styles and content, all that. But let's face it, at the end of the day, there's just certain realities about being together in person around engaging with one another, building relationships, networking. Maybe it's the happy hour at the end of the day of training where you get to know your new colleagues better. I mean, that stuff, that's going to be harder to emulate in a virtual setting, just but but not impossible, perhaps. Is that right? That's right. Uh, you know, I, I'll give you an example of one client right now. The new hires get uh, a welcome pack delivered to their homes. And inside the welcome pack are envelopes that say open day one, open day two. And, if, and, and, and inside, say, okay, have this material ready for Friday and it might be mixers or some you know something that they could prepare or an activity that's not necessarily business related but it's part of their engagement and at the on then on Friday they do a zoom call or they do a, a web platform call where they all prepare this stuff together and then the head of the facilitator or a sales leader says all right I'm going to toast to you guys right and they're all together so again is it is it being the same at the bar or at lunch or at dinner not no, but is it another nice touch to a virtual event that gets us a little bit closer? I think those are the things that we're starting to see come out over the last two months. This goes back to the earlier point about best practice sharing, and just I mean, there's this. I think the the biggest limiter on on doing these kinds of things is one's own creativity and coming up with interesting things to do, right? Which would be where I'd fall on my face. I think is uh, like you'd see these great ideas from others, like oh, that's awesome. I would have never thought of that. So. Sharing ideas becomes, um, I think, pretty critical. Because where do you land on this whole thing, Doug? It sounds like, I, I think, if I were to take all this way, it sounds you're pretty bullish. Look, I, I think you, you know this about me. You know, I'm an optimist, right? 
and and I'm focused on a mission and the challenge, and we're going to accomplish that. And we're going to get it together. I mean, I'm a big, uh, you know, you talk about um, your your comment about best practicing. I'm a big believer too that the knowledge of the audience far outweighs the knowledge on the stage, and and that when we use our, you know, think about our peer connect that we use, right? Where client, you know, the clients are learning from each other, and so I'm, I have I've been a very excited participant and watching these conversations happen. And I've been there right with you in these cohorts. And that's what gets me excited. You know, it's, it's, it, what gets me excited is this energy of sales enablement leaders, sales L&D leaders, folks that want to improve the seller experience. And they're not throwing in the towel. They're absolutely pivoting and working. You know, their strategy depends on the resources they've got. And they're pivoting to to actually accomplish the objective and mission. And watching that unfold over the last two months has been incredibly exciting. It's pretty energizing, isn't it? And I got to tell you, so this conversation you and I ran on on Tuesday earlier this week where we were talking about virtual sales kickoff. So like this is the big kahuna, right, of sales organizations. This is when you bring everyone in, you send them to Orlando or, you know, Portugal or some sunny place somewhere, right? And it's like, and you put them in a room for four days, you got mixers and training and keynotes and, and, and I think we'd all agree, well, there's no way you can replicate that virtually. And yet when we put the question to a group of about 50 heads of sales enablement, at least five or six of them had done it already and said, not only did it work, it worked better than I ever anticipated. And I kind of liked it. I, it's, it. Were you surprised by that? That general consensus was that this actually could, could work. Uh, I, I, I was, I mean, I was, I asked you the question because I was a little surprised. I was happily surprised, but I was a little surprised. I was, I, I, I have been to your point, pleasantly surprised at the reaction for many folks um, as they've as they've moved. And some of the ideas that are coming out in those cohorts, Brent, are gold. I mean, they're, they're just so creative, really exciting. They? they really are. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's been fascinating to watch. So I, I guess in some ways, for someone who's been in this field as long as you have, Doug, it's, it's got, it's, you know, it's just kind of a neat moment, isn't it? I mean, it, it's in, in, in the silver lining of what I think we'd all agree is a very tough context, whether you talk about the health crisis, the economic crisis, these are, I mean, they are tough times, but to, but, but it's also necessity breeds invention, right? And, and watching people invent is, um, is pretty exciting. All right. Well, there you have it uh, from our VP analyst, Doug Boucher. Uh, so and the note again is redesigned face-to-face sales training for the virtual classroom and and three principles that we talked about, the advantages and, and I suppose disadvantages of moving to virtual training, what we need to watch for, what are the considerations that are important, what do you change, what do you not change, and, and how and why, and where might you get ideas to do that? And then how do you capture that human element in a virtual setting, those, those sort of social aspects? And hopefully that was useful uh, to all of you. The next steps, Doug, I, I guess if someone hears this conversation says, man, I want to have more, I, I got to imagine you'd be more than happy to hop on the phone and just kind of go a little deeper. Absolutely. We've got a whole, we got a team here, but absolutely, if this is a topic that uh, is, is of interest to clients, happy to sit down and talk more. Awesome, Doug. It's just so, it just, I can't tell you how exciting it is to have your expertise on, on our team to call you a colleague. So thank you for your time today, Doug, and thank you everyone for joining us. And we will all talk soon on this topic and others. And until then, please, everyone stay safe, take care of each other. Cheers, everyone. Have a great day.